equanimity. The last or culminating of the seven enlightenment factors. Um, This is actually the second talk about equanimity. So if you were hoping for something else, please apply equanimity to the uh, (laughs) process of listening. I wanted to talk about it because it speaks of sort of the maturing of what we've been doing here with connecting with experience as it is, cultivating joy and clarity and learning how to undo the habit of fueling and stoking the fires of reactivity. It's also the last of the four Brahma-viharas um, at least in our system, and I'll be talking about that uh, at the, toward the last part of the talk. But equanimity in that Brahma-vihara sense is, speaks of a wise and warm relationship with life, including all beings and ourselves, uh, in our metta and also in our wisdom. It also refers uh, to the process of balancing our energy, Two times in practice when we feel rather sweetly serene, observing things coming and going like a passing show. It refers to the mind of an arhant, where there's no root of greed or ill will or delusion left. Only those roots which all of us share of generosity, of kindness and of wisdom. So in the texts, there are ten kinds of equanimity listed, but they all really mean a kind of unbiased quality of heart and mind, of acceptance and connection, where we're centered and we're not thrown off by things that arise. We're neither disconnected nor overly attached. We're in harmony with life just as it is. We see that here in our moment-to-moment experience, not in some other place. So we are always practicing in the middle. Equanimity is also both a goal and an expression of our practice, an attitude that we can live from and cultivate. So um, when I was nervous about coming to this retreat, as I said in my first talk, something um, that has been... Uh, quite joyously, um, not the case that this turned out to not be such a terrifying experience at all. I've really enjoyed working with everyone, and I've sort of felt myself able to rise to and connect with the privilege of being here, at least as best I can. Um, so I really thank you all for your practice and for the just the honesty and sincerity in the meetings and just the beauty of the opportunity to serve you guys. But one of the things that reassured me was listening to a um, national public radio podcast uh, from a geophysicist named Xavier Le Pichon. Um, Maybe some of you heard this podcast from the On Being series. He's a prize-winning geophysicist who in the late 1960s, put together a unified theory of plate tectonics where you know how Africa and South America seem like they should 
fit together. You know, there's a bump in one and indentation in the other. Um, it took geologists rather a long time to figure out that they were actually once together. And that's kind of why there are ostriches in both places kind of thing. Um, but he felt that um, the earth is like a living being that needs to evolve and change, and it can't do that without moving. He felt that the earth is actually like a fragile being, always, always changing. And then that this contact with the fragility and the need for evolution is part of what makes us able to become what we really and truly are. So although Mr. Le Pichon is a Catholic, he's talking about Buddha nature, saying that we all have this capacity to be human, but if we don't come in contact with what's fragile and impermanent in us, then we can't evolve to our full potential, to our full transcendent or divine birthright. So he wrote about how he had this uh, moment of transformation. It's almost exactly like the Buddha There's only one task I can fill in this home for dying destitutes of the Mother Teresa of Calcutta. With my own children, I learned how to spoon-feed a baby. From the motions of the lips and tongue, I detect when it is possible to delicately introduce a tiny bit of food in the mouth. Infants are so fragile that the only food they can accept is one that is given with tenderness. The proximity of death has brought back this five-year-old child to his infancy. It is not easy to get the grains of rice into his mouth. He would like to help in order to please me, but he doesn't have the strength anymore. The grains of rice fall on the napkin that I've spread below his chin. Small windows through the upper part of the walls diffuse a peaceful light that envelops the rows of bodies from which groans are rising. The street noise that comes from the outside strangely appears to come from far away. This exchange between the child and me penetrates to the deepest part of my heart. After this, he says, why did I have to travel 10,000 kilometers to meet this person so that he would completely reorient my life? So like the Buddha, Le Pichon saw himself in this other and suffering person. And as his heart opened and there was no separation, a transcendent reality opened within him. He opened to dukkha, the instability or the fleetingness of this life in this world, beyond separation. After this, he moved his whole family into a community to live with people who are disabled in various ways. Um, feeling that it's not that, you know, he's sort of taking advantage of or exploiting such people, but that it's truly necessary for us to include everyone in our human communities in order for ourselves to become who we need to be. So he also theorizes about how even life itself seems to be arising from an error in the genetic code. And he talks about how the Earth's crust, he talked a little bit about California and how much force there is on the, of movement uh, under the crust so that the superficial part of the crust that's kind of hardened and frozen has to break 
where the underneath part that's warm and soft can simply flow. So in a sense, I feel that's what we're doing here in our practice is to warm and and soften, warm and soften our hearts, opening to what's true, to the flow of impermanence that's inside ourselves and outside ourselves, under the hardened crust of our self-images and fears and our cravings and frustrations. As John very beautifully spoke last night about the river, to start to see that we are the river and we're not separate from that river of change. So how does this take place in our kind of training? When we leave here, we'll connect with other people and other beings and very much with the fragility of the outer world. But for here we have our inner world experience and to some extent the outer world with sort of our retreat was like one of the traditional three-month rains retreats of the ancient days where it really rained on us a lot. Um, It's one of the fools in Shakespeare said, the rain, it raineth every day. Um, Speaking of the rain of experience or the rain of dukkha. And how do we develop this quality of buoyancy, as John said, the ability to float or not be separated from the water by bringing our attention from moment to moment to every moment, not just the moments that we wish, the ones where we feel that sort of on the overt or outer level we're in balance or we're soaring or we're huge, but the times when we're really in a place that we prefer, we would have preferred not to be. And what happens uh, when we equalize our attention and our willingness to be with those extremes and also with the neutral uh, points in between, as uh, we've all heard about a little bit. We start to see a reality beyond our preferences and we begin to discover a beauty, that beauty of upekka, of equanimity, which in some other traditions is also called surrender. One of our teachers, Manindra, from our lineage here, a teacher of Jack's and mine and John's and Trudy's, I think, too, used to often say, surrender to the law. And sometimes when I'm in a space I disprefer, I sort of imagine a pistol in my <laughs> The sheriff has come, surrender to the law. <laughs> And the law means something, you know, in this uh, sort of verbiage of it, or the formulation means it's something that can't be changed. The law of change doesn't change. Um, And as much as we wish we could change it, we can't change it. And experience, our experience has no real owner. And if we look deeply and open up and relax into that, it's beautiful but it doesn't seem right to us in the beginning. Surrender to the law can be done, remaining buoyant, unbiased, and at peace through some of the methods that we've been practicing, that we've received from our teachers, from the Dharma. One of uh, the Tibetan teachers that I've studied with, uh, the it's the 12th Gyalwang Drukpa. You know my orange hat that I have. Some of you have admired the incredible garishness of that hat. The 800-year Drukpa lineage, he's been the same person for 800 years. He once was taken to a um, 
one of those parrot places where the, there's all kinds of birds that are trained to do different things. And he said, if a parrot can be trained to ride a bicycle across a little tight wire, then the human mind can actually do this practice. <laughs> so let's hope we're at... <laughs> One other way of talking about uh, upekka or uh, equanimity or serenity or surrender is that it's just a sane response to life as it is. There's a um, psychological equanimity scale that I found online which has a bunch of questions including um, here after a month in retreat. Can see how you answer any of these? (laughs) I do not go out of my way to cover up my negative qualities and mistakes. I can remain open to thoughts and feelings that come into my mind. (laughs) I'm comfortable being an ordinary, less than perfect human being. I can take joy in others' achievements without feeling envious. I find I can be calm and happy even when things are not going my way. Maybe. We're just hoping to be a little bit more that way. By offering the same caring and precise attention to each moment of the day, to each segment of our breath, to each distraction, to each meal, the uh, meals that might seem, if you're not paying attention, to be quite repetitive and monotonous. (laughs) But if you are paying attention, begin to be filled with more fascination and intrigue. So when we find that we are like in that state of unwillingness to be with something and we just touch upon the unwillingness itself. We start with wherever we are. Um, Start with those outer layers of experience. Uh, Oh, distraction. And in recognizing distraction, we're automatically again back in the space of knowing uh, what's happening where we are. When our mind strays from awareness, wants things to be a certain way, is thinking a lot, all of that, maybe by now we have a little bit more equanimity about this kind of process of being a human being. Learning to meet each moment as with a little bit more friendliness. The near enemy of upekka, what's called, um, the thing that seems a little bit like equanimity but really is different, the Buddha also used the same word. It's also upekka, or uh, the near. Em- it's too much equanimity, which is being emotionally dead or cut off, or unwilling to not experience, unwilling to experience something. The far enemy is getting really thrown, or adding more and more reactivity. Actually, I see the two of those as very much related. Like when people say, um, "I can't bear to hear about that. Uh, please, I don't want to know." about what's happening. It's because they feel um, unable to remain in balance while still hearing that. Um, Sometimes that can be a very wise response, knowing when to stop, which I'll try to talk about. So let's just make sure as this retreat is coming to an end that we remember to cultivate the space where we can kind of experience and settle and find a space to actually connect with what's going on. Thoreau said in Walden, why should we live with such a hurry and waste of life? For my part, I could do without the post office. I think there are very few important communications made through it. (laughs) (laughs) 
if he only knew about email, <laughs> I think he'd be, he's rolling in his grave, I guess. <laughs> so in the text, sometimes I like to take things apart this way and uh, talk about the traditional presentation. Upeka, uh, equanimity, is made of upa plus ikhati, which means the word upa is upon and viewing. So it's viewing upon, and it's actually seeing all things from this balanced point of view, being willing to look at everything and gaze upon everything. The characteristic of equanimity is that it balances the mind and allows all of the faculties and factors to function together, to allow all the other factors of enlightenment to work together freely. It's compared to a charioteer who drives two horses at an equal pace, neither one faster than the other, not getting thrown off by things and also getting up again when we are thrown off, I would say. Getting up in stages, maybe, knowing that um, we're never stepping in the same river twice, that we are being changed by everything that happens, and can we allow that? Another comparison of Upeka is to the chairman of a meeting or an organization who tries to give everyone an equal chance to speak, And I like this one because of the many voices inside ourselves, that uh, some that we don't wish to listen to and some that we're extremely dominated by. I also like this because of the um, relevance to our outer life, to uh, letting everyone in the world kind of speak, all the voices uh, of the planet even, maybe beyond human society, that radical inclusivity um, that may go beyond our human preference. Equanimity meets experience not with indifference or callous dismissiveness, but meets whatever and whoever arises uh, before our eyes, all the bumps on the path, without stoking the fires of reactivity. So when the Buddha talked about dukkha, this is another word derivation thing, du means kind of bad or dirty, and ka means space. It's actually the same word as a mouth. So it's fun because it's a little bit like our current parlance, like I was in a bad space, right? I was adding fuel to the fires. So when we talk about dukkha or suffering, it's that space of imbalance or reactivity, that insane mind that um, takes an experience and starts comparing it to uh, someone else's experience or um, clasps on to things being permanent gets jealous or makes a huge uh, self out of things. Actually, by using that word dukkha as the first noble truth, I also feel that he was emphasizing that the teachings are really experiential. They're about our experience moment to moment, that it's a way of kind of dramatizing, not just saying that it's suffering, but it's about experientiality. So it's about our world as it arises through all of our sense doors and how we live in it. And dukkha can give way to sukha or a space where there's balance, like when we're in a good space, a balanced space. And at the time, it was really related to the way people thought about uh, riding in a chariot. Those would be words that people used for um, the contemporary version of a car. So having a nice ride, being in a good space, and being kind of cushioned from the bumps on the road by what? 
by our awareness, by being very much alive in this moment and making space to allow things to arise. So Thoreau again said, Every morning was a cheerful invitation to make my life of an equal simplicity, and I may say innocence with nature herself. I got up early and bathed in the pond. It was a religious exercise. I was as much affected by the faint hum of a mosquito making its invisible and unimaginable tour through my apartment as I could have been by any trumpet that ever sang of fame. The buzzing of the mosquito was an Iliad and an odyssey in the air, singing wrath and wanderings. There was something cosmical about it, a standing advertisement of the everlasting vigor and fertility of the world. Now, it really sounds like he was being mindful. It's just like a yogi um, in that simplicity. So remembering um, that these wholesome roots of awakening have to do with being very, very present with things. The Buddha's uh, philosophy is, or our belief is, that those wholesome roots are inalienable parts of us, that they can never be eradicated, whereas the difficulty parts can be. Uh, We're progressing to sort of make thinner all those veils. Um, But as Le Pichon was saying, that we need to develop that wholesome response to life again and again and again. So again, moving a little technically through the textual description of Upeka is that its manifestation is that we remain in balance, that we're in the centered uh, position in our experience. The Buddha's first teaching, his first words when he spoke to his friends uh, was about the middle path or the middle way. I think some Uh, in some way that really speaks to the heart of our experience, to the center of our body, to being on your cushion, to being in balance physically, mentally, in every way, freedom from extremes. Keeping our mind steady and on track. uh, The Thai Jack's teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to say that the practice was just like driving a buffalo. He was talking to farmers. He said, like, if you're driving a buffalo along a road, a water buffalo, it's always going to see something that it wants over on the right-hand side and try to go nibble grass and stop, or on the left-hand side and nibble grass and stop over there. And what um, the practice is just to keep that awareness uh, buffalo aligned and on the road. One of Ajahn Chah's mental note recommendations is just enough. Like, just be there, just enough. Um, I really like that one. It's very uh, equanimous when the mind gets entangled, just enough. The Buddha suggested in the Samyutta Nikaya that when a practitioner sees a form that is agreeable, one says, or she says, so it is. Or sees a form that is disagreeable and says, so it is. So agreeable and disagreeable, being met with awareness and attention and care, just saying, so it is. That's equanimity here. As we do that, uh, we begin to release the network of sort of constriction and insanity that binds our heart and that binds our mind. It's quite incredible how simple this is just touching on the truth of things, however they're arising for us, 
That's equanimity itself. Both the orientation toward doing that and the practice and when it happens. So the last textual piece that I'll give, because I think it's really interesting and significant, is that in the Abhidhamma, equanimity is a mental factor, which has a very long and complicated name that sounds like falling down the stairs. Tatra Majatata. (laughs) You can keep your head when all about you are falling down the stairs anyway. (laughs) This is a mental factor that maintains the mind on the object with equanimity. And Paok Sayado says, How powerful is this? It is like the thunderbolt of the king of the gods being released. Tatramajatata is the power to be able to meditate on any conditioned experience and see its nature of anicca, dukkha, and anatta without longing or anxiety. So really being able to look at things without longing or anxiety. Now, to make it a little tiny bit more juicy, I really love Kamala Master's teachings on equanimity. She has um, very beautiful talks about it. And one of the phrases that she offers is to look at life with quiet eyes, which is a quote from uh, the African-American theologian and preacher Howard Thurman, who started a church in San Francisco called the Universal Fellowship of All Peoples, I think, something like that. He says, Look out on life with all its cruel vicissitudes and transcendent joys with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. There's something about that that speaks to the heart, that we can be wise and loving and we can face life this way, or we can at least remember to try or that it's an option for us. Because in our world, it's not really very much emphasized, the quality of serenity or um, this calmness or this quietness. Mostly, there's talk about extreme experiences and extreme sports and getting more stuff and being kind of the right person and being sort of the right way. Um, As if, you know, there's so many engines in our culture that drive uh, greed and hatred and delusion and we'll be uh, facing some of those when we leave here. It's very important, the skill that we've learned here, to be able to soothe ourselves and to know when to stop and to drop into quietness. Speaking of soothing ourselves, there's a New Yorker cartoon that came into my mind. I think you guys might need a joke right around now. So, um, It's a couple who's in front of this therapist, uh, and they're looking kind of troubled and anxious, and the therapist is saying to them, well, why don't you try making love in the morning before you piss each other off? <laughs> so meditate first thing in the morning. Maybe it'll help your day. <laughs> So one of the supports for uh, upekka or um, uh, serenity, equanimity, is actually knowing when to stop, like knowing when to stop our activity or knowing when to stop it, our efforts. You know, the uh, image of the charioteer to keep the horses moving at an even pace. Now that, in the beginning of the retreat uh, this month, John said we're here to learn how to stop and to stop and stay in stillness here and now. 
But more importantly than actually doing this in sitting is learning how to stop or soothe or um, work with our reactivity. Perhaps our reactivity is very, very old. This philosophical tradition says we may have been carrying it for many lifetimes, this anger and this selfiness. I don't like to call it selfishness. And selfiness is kind of a sweeter way of saying it. This confinement within um, our ordinary way of seeing the world, how to be more balanced and at ease uh, with this. There's a story in one of the free distribution Thai booklets of a woman meditator who was able to see her past lives. She came to the teacher and um, said, I went back all the way to the time of King Ashoka and I saw my husband getting a beating for some infraction of protocol and I'm very mad. And the teacher said, you've been mad for 2,500 years? (laughs) Maybe it's time to apologize um, to yourself. So, knowing when to stop is now, but actually knowing how to stop is a whole other thing. And that's, uh, I won't go into that, but that's what we've been learning here, is actually allowing the space or the equanimity for experience to arise sort of belonging to itself, that um, not grasped at, not rejected, yet connected. One of the big ways of doing that, as we discover here, and uh, I feel like I try to encourage people in interviews either to connect with, like, it's basically okay, you know. I remember one time I went in to uh, a meeting with Sharon Salzberg and told her that I was really bent out of shape because I'd had two cups of hot chocolate in one day. And I really felt, I felt a little ill. And I knew I didn't need the second one. And I was living through these karmic consequences that were resonating really strongly. (laughs) Why did I do that to myself? And she said, Kate, my name at the time, there are people out there murdering each other. (laughs) And that sort of helped to take a bigger perspective. But I think... (laughs) One of the things I've learned now after many years in practice, it's almost like descending a little spiral staircase into my heart and finding the place where that hook is and gently lifting it and letting it down. Like I don't have to hold myself to this image of perfection. So self-compassion, letting yourself fail, uh, lowering the bar, or even doing away with that bar of expectation altogether. How about that? new research about self-compassion, saying, I found in my research that the biggest reason people don't want to practice compassion for themselves is that they believe self-criticism is what keeps them in line. They're afraid they'll be self-indulgent. Doesn't that resonate? The reason you don't let your children eat five big tubs of ice cream is that you care about them. With self-compassion, if you care about yourself, you do what's healthy for you rather than what's harmful. They found that in doing research um, on eating, like they put these huge bowls of donuts in front of 84 female college students. And (laughs) it was supposed to be a tasting experiment. And the ones who were reassured that um, everybody eats this stuff, you know, it's like, it's okay, everybody like ends up eating more than they should or something like that. Those women ate fewer donuts than the ones who didn't get the reassurance that it was actually okay. It's really interesting that um, basing our self 
discipline or on deprivation and neglect and kind of beating ourselves into shape is not realistic and it isn't even helpful. So practicing in the middle of our experience means not waiting to love ourselves until we have the perfect body. Um, Not waiting to love ourselves until our mind is in balance. Not waiting to care and connect with ourselves until, you know, we've solved our problems and issues once and for all. It does require a kind of engagement. You know, we're saying that uh, equanimity is not disconnected. The horses that the charioteer is guiding are running or trotting or walking or something, but they're not frozen stone horses. There's an engagement, there's a willingness, there's a meeting of experience, there's a bringing of energy and attention. There's making contact with experience and then bringing all the other enlightenment factors to bear the awareness. The poet Stonehouse said, a thatched hut, blue mountains, green streams, visits by now are up to me. Two or three peach trees and plum trees in bloom, green and yellow fields of vegetables and wheat. I sit all night in bed listening to rain, open my window and doze off watching clouds. Nothing is better than being free, but getting free is not luck. So caring about ourselves, we engage in this way, make space for equanimity. So I want to talk again, just to finish, about um, the way that it's caring and warm all the way down, this equanimity practice of living in this world, uh, the outer and inner world, navigating our experience, connecting, being happy with whoever we're with in experience or whatever activity we're with, whatever our yogi job is in the retreat or out of the retreat. We're also cultivating a space of equanimity as we offer metta to ourselves, who might may be the last person that we ever thought to offer metta to, even if we've been practicing for many, many years and heard this teaching a million times. When we offer metta to the people that are easy to give metta to, to the people that we didn't notice, that don't seem even like a person, that are kind of like a cutout to the difficult people inside and outside ourselves and all beings, we start to realize that it's the same metta, it's the equal metta, we're taking that equal attitude to all beings. In the Brahma Viharas practice, in this, in this tradition, we start with metta and go through that equalization process and have uh, equanimity at the end to emphasize the fact that equanimity is full of love, absolutely full of love. (coughs) Yet we see the reality of things, including that uh, many people do not behave the way we wish they would. So just as much as seeing the world with quiet eyes um, can be a phrase, so can people don't do what I want be an equanimity (laughs) phrase. (laughs) Surrender to the law, Another one, uh, it's all a passing show, another. But we see that reality when we drop into the equanimity practice that uh, although our heart is full of love, we may not be able to um, come between 
someone else and their journey and their path. And actually there's a dignity in that and there's a respect in that non-interference of saying each of us is free to face our life um, as we can and as we will. Even the Buddha would have saved us all already if it had been the Buddha's, within the Buddha's power. But all the Buddha could do was really show the way. And it's in our own uh, scope of freedom whether we take up this task uh, separately and together or not. In the Tibetan tradition, they start with equanimity to emphasize the equality of all beings. Longchenpa said, um, those who are unhappy or tormented by frustration, those who are engrossed in their own happiness and satisfaction and their wealth, those who are deeply attached to or bitterly set against anyone, all those beings, whether near or far, or far, are the objects for our practice of love, compassion, joyfulness, and equanimity. So all those who are in torment and all those who are maybe neglectful of others because they're so self-satisfied, those who are attached, those who are warlike, all of those are the people and beings to whom we're willing to offer these practices of love, compassion, joyfulness, and equanimity. And it's not saying that we don't see that those beings are in that state. You know, we might offer those offerings with a wish that they might be freed. In fact, as he goes on, he says, Our wish is, would that the emotions of beings, we beings who are worn out, may we come to rest, may our minds calm down. Would that all bodies, all embodied beings, tormented by the violence of attachment and hatred, would that we would all calm down. There's a suggestion to begin the practice of loving-kindness by seeing ourself and other beings, friends and enemies, as all being alike. And we see that. We've seen plenty of that in our time here, whether it's two months or one month, that we are all kind of worn out. We are all tormented by violence, uh, by attachment, by hatred, by indifference. And out of this space, we cultivate and we offer kindness and love to ourselves and to others. Afterwards, he says, you can move on to non-referential equanimity, seeing that everything is in our experience, everything occurs within our minds, and as such is like a spacious sky. Let your mind be free from any ideas about itself and settle in the sphere that is utterly open. So after opening the heart with the image of all beings, the suggestion is to just drop the sense of the beings per se and just let the openness become the subject of meditation. So again, uh, Sri Lankan uh, equanimity phrase, uh, beautifully translated and offered by John Peacock um, at BCBS, one of the times that he came and spoke with us when we were in our training Life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. I care deeply for you, but sadly, I cannot keep you from distress. Life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. I care deeply for you, but sadly, I cannot keep you from distress. So here we are, having taken 
this time for a really fairly arduous, very joyful and persistent effort to open our minds and hearts in various ways, in all directions, uh, to lose our kind of biases, whatever those may be. We can do it. We have to continue. I hope we all do, because that's a sort of infinite uh, cultivation. I'll close with two different quotes. One of them is again from uh, Xavier Le Pichon, talking about how his father cared for his mother as she had Alzheimer's and didn't, uh, he wanted her to remain stable in their home uh, so that she could be in a familiar environment. He had understood that love grows very slowly. Before the presence of our loved one, so whether it's us or someone else, can fill the whole space of the present instant, there's a need for a lot of faithfulness a lot of patience, and mostly a lot of gratuitous time. Nothing replaces the time given to the other. Our being must empty itself of its own interest and greet without restrictions the fragile and mysterious gift of the love, fragility, and mystery that increase with the weakness and depth of injuries of the loved one. My father thus discovered a new depth of the love he had for his wife, love he had thought to be already so deep. I had never loved her so much, he told me the last time I saw him. She had revealed to all those who welcomed her with love a new depth to their humanity. They now understood better that they had a heart and could find happiness only in loving. So that willingness to touch our wound or our pain or the fleetingness and fragility of life. It's really, really critical to the capacity to grow the force and strength of our equanimity, both for ourselves and the kind of sukha or caring safe space that we can offer to other beings. So the last um, Buddhist quote here is from an autobiographical book by a young Thai American man who went back to Thailand and became a monk um, as an effort to kind of understand his own roots and his own heritage, his own biracial sort of uh, sense of self. And it's quite a funny book. He's not a good monk at all. And at one point, he and a friend uh, run away from the monastery and they go on this long, crazy trip through the jungle, which is where they get really messed up and they end up meeting this old monk. Um, who asks them where the Buddha is. And uh, young guy's answer is, the Buddha's everywhere, I told the long Paul. He studied me for a moment and slowly began to shake his head. The Buddha is not in those places, he said. <laughs> I nodded. Do you understand that you do not know where the Buddha is, he said. I nodded. Do you understand that you do not know where the Buddha is, he asked. I shook my head and said, I did understand. Yes. The long pole was silent for several seconds. Are you sure? He asked. Yes, I said. The long pole said nothing. He looked at me again and then behind me into the forest. Then he looked over his shoulder into the mouth of the cave. He shook his head as if the most simple thing he'd always known had suddenly confused him. The Buddha's in the heart, he said. I nodded. Do you believe that? 
I nodded. Do you believe that? I nodded again. Then why did you leave the forest temple and go try to find the Buddha someplace else, he said. (laughs) I shrugged. I couldn't speak or think, and my robes felt heavy. The Buddha's in the heart. He's in your mind. He's in the heart that's always my nejai. I don't know how to pronounce that. Maybe Jack can tell me later. The long Po's face softened and became more gentle and sympathetic. I held the phrase in my mind until it made sense. My nejai, not sure heart. The long Po pointed to his heart. My nejai, he said. Do you understand? Uncertain. I nodded my head yes. The long Po pointed to my friend and asked why he'd never told me this. The Thai friend didn't answer. Tell him this. He hasn't understood anything. (laughs) The Thai guy, not wrong, didn't look up. The Long Po rose, and as he passed me, he rested one finger on my shoulder. That is the Buddha, he said, to have a heart that is uncertain. I watched as he passed through the tree line on a narrow trail and vanished into the forest. That was the first and last time I ever saw that man. So, there we are. So may we understand the Buddha of our uncertain hearts, uncertain minds, uncertain circumstances. And may we all be blessed by these teachings. Thank you. Sit quietly for a minute.